We got through most of Daniel, and we, we got to where I wanted to that. Um, I've got a handout. Marjorie's getting the rest of it for us. I do miss Yun because I just used to send him stuff even late in the afternoon. Hey, Yun, can you print this for me? Um, so it's just some light reading. And it's okay. There's only one more to go. <laughs> so you're, look, you're looking at me so you guys can have one. Marjorie will be back with the rest of them in just a second. They're going through the printer. So, eschatology, pre-post-A. Almost sounds Canadian in regards to this. So we're going we're to dive in. We're going to try to take a look at understanding how people come at the millennial. Um, but there's a bunch of hermeneutical stuff, which is simply what we'll talk about hermeneutics about in just a second. So this is what we have been going through. We've been talking about that kind of 69 weeks in Daniel and the 70th. Uh, this is one gentleman's, I forget his name, you have to I apologize for that. But just his concept of the, you know, there's 483 years that Daniel talks about, which takes us up to, and we went through some of this, takes us up to the Messiah coming on the cross, which was about 32 AD. And then we have this gap. There's the, the cities destroyed in 70 AD. And then we have this church age that we're in now. First Thessalonians talks about a rapture. We'll eventually get into that. Uh, the tribulation period of two, three and a half years on each side. And then the second coming, Armageddon. And then the kingdom age, the millennium, the great white throne of judgment, which we read in Revelation 20, and the new heaven and new earth. That is one particular eschatological view of what's going to happen. That's what's going to happen. That's, that's about where I'm at too. So this is about what's going to happen. We'll get into some of the trickier stuff next. So how have people through all of history viewed the millennium? Because it's been viewed in different ways. So in the early part of history, uh, right after the cross and after the disciples and, and the apostles had moved off the scene, uh, and we'll talk about this again in a little bit. But the early church fathers always seem to be premillennial in their view. That Christ would come back before the thousand-year kingdom reign. And so there's many writings from early church fathers that lean this way. Then there was this gentleman named Tychonius. And he sort of had a different view. And Augustine clung to that different view. Because Augustine had some concerns. Some of Augustine's concerns relied around the exuberance and that, that everybody was like always looking for this next coming and what was going to happen. And, and he kind of started to see things a little differently. And when he started things differently, he said, came up with his own view, which post-millennialism hinged on to for many years. And post-millennialism continued through history, um, until we hit a bit of Calvin as a reformed in the 1500s, tends to be more amill in his thoughts, amillennialist that we're in the thousand-year reign now. It's, he, he did somewhat of Augustine did being a post-millennial, and that's the concept of spiritualizing a little bit of what we see now. He didn't see it as something that was to come. And that had a hold on on, on uh, the Western church for many, many years until I think it was Darby um, was really the beginning of it, and then B.B. Warfield. Uh, but Darby uh, really started the one with where he started to say, no, 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 
the roots of the early church saw things as premillennial. So in Derby and in Schofield and uh, Ladd, uh, they would, George Ladd, I believe it is, they would look at things from a more premillennial standpoint. And then that became the dominant teaching. But at the same time, uh, there were others, I think that's where Warfield falls into in Edwards, that started to view things more as an amillennial, that we're in the kingdom now, the thousand years isn't literal, Jesus reigns from heaven on the throne, and it, it's already initiated, we're here. So you can see with those different groups, pre-mill adherents tend to be from Plymouth Brethren, uh, what they call fundamentalists and evangelicals. And that, this was taken from, um, this gentleman here is an evangelical free pastor in uh, Tampa, Florida, and he has all his stuff up online. You can take his slides and use them. I just thought I'd credit him so you didn't think I was that great with the computer and made this up myself. Um, uh, the hard part is picking a slide, then you have to go proof everything, which I was doing this week just to make sure he was correct. So, Amil, whoops, one, there. So, Amil adherents tend to be from a Catholic, Orthodox, Lutheran, Reformed, Anglican, Methodist background. Uh, you're going to catch me on that one. Some of them are. I don't think all of them are because I've heard some Presbyterians talk, but I think they would lean that way. Anybody have a better answer? Presbyterians fall more amill, or I might depend which branch of Presbyterian you're in too, right? Um, so that, that's where we are today. Predominantly, your two lines of thought. You do still have some post-mill people around, but predominantly, you either fall into the amillennials camp where you think... We're in this thousand-year reign. Christ is reigning now completely from his throne on high. And it's all sort of figurative what's happening. It's not literal. And then you have your brethren movement and your evangelicals. And I guess I'd fall more into fundamental. I don't know. But that's where we'd fall as far as pre-mill. So... The early church, as we said, was pre-mill. They, they had these expectations of Christ coming back. And many were convinced it was going to happen in their lifetime. That comes out of the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24. And that is some of the reasoning. When you look at First and Second Thessalonians, um, here comes Marjorie. She'll... I gave Sam the heavy reading first. Uh, <laughs> so... First and Second Thessalonians were written to address some of the apparent delay, uh, but still saying, you know, Jesus will come, just you need to go about your business and we don't know when. Then you can see some of the early church fathers, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, they both taught this literal thousand-year reign to come that when Christ returned. As did Lactinus, uh, he was North African, Clement of Rome, and Ignatius of Antioch. All fell into that part. Now, I had shown you the breakup. Oh, don't go that far. The breakup right there. Uh, so Augustine was a little bit after that. So mid, well, that's about right. That would be mid-4th century. I always get confused when I see those. So Augustine has this concern about premillennialist expectations. So he developed this more symbolic understanding of the millennium. Millennia, and, and he, was the, he was under this teacher, Tychonus, but it was Augustine that popularized it. 
It was Augustine that was the driving force behind it. So that became the prominent view for a thousand years, this post-millennial view, and as we saw right up to World War II, and that also began to saw the emergence of the amillennial, amillennial camp uh, out of the Reformation movement. Then post-millennialism sort of faded away, and I had to look this up. I didn't know this, but it faded away from prominence and had more to do with things that were happening in real life and then how people were viewing back to the Scripture. So what happened was uh, the revivalism in the 18th century, and there was this sort of optimism of, of what was happening, and then we had the great carnage of the two world wars, and then amillenniums started to see themselves uh, in a more realistic expectation as history moved forward into the different branches of Christianity, and then premillennialism began to see a reemergence. And it, because we said, more in the fundamental Baptist backgrounds, evangelical backgrounds, is where it took hold as people began to look at Scripture and started to decipher it. Of course, John Darby, and then how many still have a Schofield Bible? We got one there, one there. I'm sure if we had everybody here, we'd find a few more Schofield Bibles. You haven't used it for decades. It's not bad to use it. Um, but many, many people grew up, especially through the 60s and 70s and into the early 80s. Uh, if you went around your churches and you were to, if you were around back then, I know some of you at the back weren't even alive then, but that's okay. If you were to go around to the, and, and, and look at the, the mature saints' Bibles, they would all be Schofield mainly, especially in your, what do you want me to call them, seasoned saints? Um, but uh, you would look and that's what they would be. They would be Schofield reference Bibles. Okay. When you look at the, the end times, we touched on this a little bit, but biblical hermeneutics and understanding this is really important. So hermeneutics, I, I know they throw it a lot around a lot if you listen to the Christian radio and pastors will throw it around a lot. What's your hermeneutical approach? Simply it means how do you come to the Bible to study it? What's, it's the science of interpretation of the Bible. We all invent these fancy words instead of using something very simple. That's all it is, so don't be scared by the word, please. But 2 Timothy 2.15 tells us that, and that was part of the last couple of weeks in the morning. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. So hermeneutics is simply how do you approach the Bible, how do you study it, so you can feed yourself and interpret yourself which is why I really think that precept, I've been through it years ago, but I really think that, especially the Friday night, if, if you can't make the Saturday, that's, that's too bad, it'll be good, but the Friday night would be a good one to go to and, and to spend some time understanding how they approach the Bible. So, the Bible is to be interpreted literally. So, we're, we need to understand the Bible in a plain, normal meaning language. I know there are portions that are harder to understand, but overall, the attempt of Scripture is not to trip you up. But when we do approach it, we have to remember that it was written for us, but not to us. And that's where the hard part comes in, trying to discover what the Bible was saying to the original reader so that we can pull from there principles that would apply for our life. So when I get up on a Sunday morning, what I have spent the week doing is coming to the text and going, okay, what, what was happening? What, what was their life like? 
What was the context to which they lived in? And, and when John wrote this, what, what was he writing? What was his purpose? And what was John trying to communicate to them? And, and how would they understand this word? An example this morning was that greeting. We see that, and we wouldn't think what they were thinking, because we were thinking, hi, how are you? Where their concept is that idea of, of don't encourage them, don't, don't give them aid, and it would have come across a little differently. So you need a hermeneutical approach to go there, but we try to look at it. Now, there are passages that are obviously have figures of speech, so to interpret something literally is also to understand that people use uh, we went through this long, long, uh, at the very beginning of all this. We'll use different figures of speech, right? Whether it's humor, sometimes it could be sarcasm. Um, there's just different figures of speech that we have to understand. So the Bible says what it means and means what it says. So an example of this would be from Mark. So when we come to Mark 8.19, when it says Jesus fed 5,000, we believe it literally means he fed... It's not a symbolic number. You don't have to go look under a rock trying to find... It says 5,000. He fed 5,000 men. Now, were there more than men there? Probably. But it doesn't tell us how many. But that's okay. He literally fed real fish and real bed, bread to 5,000 men plus any little kitties that were hanging around. Or Yeah, the kids this morning were just making it hard to concentrate, weren't they? You're a granddaughter there, Sylvia. She's just adorable. She was up front this morning, and she's just adorable. And I forget which one of the Ukrainian little boys was going over to her. I think he's trying to pick her up right in front of us. (laughs) They were so cute up there. But anyhow, we don't have to try to spiritualize it. We don't have to try to deny a miracle. And I think I've said this one before. I was speaking at a United Church in St. Mary's to their prenatal prenatal class, sorry, premarital class. <laughs> Got to get the right pre-class here. Premarital class from my work. The pastor was a counselor through the system, and he knew I was out in the other room waiting for them all set up. And, and I could hardly believe what he said. He denied the whole miracle. The miracle of the feeding was the people's willingness. So the first one that wanted to share their lunch was the little boy. And then after the little boy took his lunch out, Everybody took their bag lunch out and shared it with everybody. So it just gutted the meaning of the text. We take it literally that there was one boy, and he had some fish and bread, and the disciples went and found him, and they decided that they would, Christ said, okay, let's pray over this, hand this out, and they came back with a whole bunch left over. Not that it was everybody was willing to share. So we don't have to find hidden spiritual stuff. We don't have to allegorize. But yes, that, that was what he taught. The, uh, to be newly married people. So passages also need to be understood in their historical, grammatical, and contextual. What's going on at the time. So it's important to understand the geography. So I often allude to that. That you know we're so many miles out of this town. So you can vision... What is going on at the time? Because all that's important. We need to understand the context of the, the history that's happening. We also need to understand the cultural background and, and what's sort of prompting the text uh, and why they're writing in that. Um, a great example of this, um, if you remember our work through Jonah earlier this year, 
we spent a lot of time on understanding culture and what was happening, how big the city was, where Jonah might have gone to overlook what was happening. And it was important so that we understand why the words are the way they are and what the writer is trying to tell us. We also understand that there are some grammar rules. How many people are really good at grammar? Oh, we got a teacher that's kind of (laughs) half-half. Okay, well, this gets worse because we need to at least have a little bit of understanding to understand a little bit of Hebrew and Greek. Not that you have to read it, but if they say something is in the present tense, um, it, it pays. And that's where commentaries help us. I'm not a Greek or Hebrew scholar, but they will tell you, oh, when you read that, it means that it's ongoing, something you're supposed to continually do. So one of that would be when it talks about in Matthew 28 that we're to go out and make disciples. That's a present tense command. It's ongoing. We're supposed to do that. We're supposed to always be doing that. There's no stopping to it. And, and that pays by, by having a word study will help. Um, I think I've told people here before But if you type into your computer, Dep Bible, I think it is, um, and you can go over there and you can, the one I use is the ESV, so Step Bible ESV, and you can go and you can find your verses in, in whatever part of the Bible you're in, and then as you take your cursor across the different words, it'll light up and you can click on it, and on the sidebar, It'll give you the tense and it'll give you what the word means and how many times it's used. It's really easy. You don't have to have the six books that I have on my commentary shelves that are taking up space now when you can just go click. And it's not that hard. And it helps you to understand these things. And we've talked about this because I say it all the time. And this is why so many times when, when we're speaking on Sunday morning, you'll find that, okay, we're going to talk about this today. Let's go way back here and understand what happened two chapters before. Because when you read Scripture, never read a verse. Because it all happens in context. So the Gospel of John never had verses and chapters in it. As we were told in Sunday school, they put the addresses in later so it was easy for us to find ourselves around. But it was written in one flowing thought. And that's why people get themselves in trouble. So even when we think of end time stuff, it's context, context, context. Because if you go out of context, you can make a lot of verses say whatever you want. And that's what some people do. I've heard some wonderful sermons in my day and left the auditorium and said to Marjorie, what a great message. Wrong passage, but a great message. And it's because the passage he was in had nothing to do with what he was talking about. It's what we said this morning. God will give you more than you can handle. And if you have a life where you don't get more than you can handle, God has deeply blessed you in a way that he has not blessed me. Because there are times that I cry. There are times that I'm driven to my knees going, Lord, I don't understand. And I have to rely on him. 1 Corinthians was all about if you get tempted, there God will provide a way for you to survive through the temptation. It's not talking about surviving through, you know, a year ago when my brother and my father-in-law died in 
days apart. No, that was a tough time. It's not talking about that. It's not addressing that issue. But it's addressing that God is good and through His Spirit, He comforts and He walks you through. But I still have to rely on Him. But it has nothing to do with 1 Corinthians. His promises that I will be with you always. Pull that out of Matthew if you want to, but not out of 1 Corinthians. So context, context, context when you read Scripture and you understand things. So again, uh, the Bible is to be understood. Is that the same slide? It went the wrong way. Am I going backwards or forwards here? I'm lost now. Okay. Going the right way now. Okay, so Scripture is the best interpreter of Scripture. And that's so true. Especially if we understand Scripture as progressive. It begins to build on each other. Uh, So things that we learn in um, the, the concept of Christ redeeming us. Where do we find a great picture of that? Ruth. Which we spent our first Sundays together was on Ruth. And we get a so scripture is progressive. God just does not dump on us his whole redemptive plan going, well, there it is, people figure it out. He takes people, it's sort of like salvation. And don't get me wrong when I say this. For most people, salvation is progressive. And I don't mean they progressively get saved. I mean that they get exposed to a little bit about the gospel and they have questions and thoughts. And so when you witness to them, they might have to get a little bit more exposure. And they they begin to build as God works in their heart and mind. They begin to go, oh, wait a second. Oh, oh, wait, wait, oh, oh, I need to be saved. And it comes in little bits and pieces to them. Well, that's, and, and I grant it. I have met people that it's hit them all at once and wonderful for them. And that's beautiful. And God works in different ways. But, but I think we frustrate ourselves in our, our, in our testimony and our witness to the community around us when we think, oh, they didn't come to the Lord just the first time I presented to them. Well, no, that doesn't always happen. Sometimes you have to take weeks and months. I think I told you Marjorie's nephew finally came back to the Lord at 41. It took years and years of people talking and nudging and God working in his heart. And then all of a sudden he's like, I've wasted my whole life. What am I doing? So when he gets married this summer, he is getting married to a Christian woman. He's invited, he's Mr. Connector. They're paying for the wedding. He's invited 350 people simply because he he says, they need to know Jesus. This is my opportunity to tell them all at once. So he's got 350 coming in July sometime. So Revelation's the same. Marjorie knows the date. I just have to show up. Just tell me to get dressed and I'll drive. I'll make it to the wedding. Don't worry. It's at the end sometime. So we, we build on revelation. And so scripture is a great place to help interpret other scripture. We're going to get deeper into that in just a little bit. And then I'll totally confuse you because I confused myself when I was doing it. Okay. Are we ready? I have to press it one more time. So Bible Munch, he talks to us a little bit about hermeneutics. Today's question is, can or should we interpret the Bible literally? In this video, I'll answer that question from a biblical perspective. Then afterwards, as always, I'll share some helpful resources. So stick around until the end. 
Not only can we take the Bible literally, but we must take the Bible literally. This is the only way to determine what God is trying to communicate to us. When we read any piece of literature, but especially the Bible, we must determine what the author intended to communicate. Many today will read a verse or passage of scripture and then give their own definitions to the words, phrases, or paragraphs, ignoring the context and author's intent. But this is not what God intended, which is why God tells us to correctly handle the word of truth. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. One reason we should take the Bible literally is because the Lord Jesus Christ took it literally. Whenever the Lord Jesus quoted from the Old Testament, it was always clear that he believed in its literal interpretation. As an example, when Jesus was tempted by Satan in Luke chapter 4, he answered by quoting the Old Testament. If God's commands in Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 3, chapter 6 verse 13, and chapter 6 verse 16 were not literal, Jesus would not have used them, and they would have been powerless to stop Satan's mouth, which they certainly did. The disciples also took the commands of Christ, which are part of the Bible, literally. Jesus commanded the disciples to go and make more disciples in Matthew chapter 28 verses 19 through 20. In Acts chapter 2 and following, we find that the disciples took Jesus' command literally and went throughout the known world of that time, preaching the gospel of Christ and telling them to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Acts chapter 16 verse 31. Just as the disciples took Jesus' words literally, so must we. How else can we be sure of our salvation if we do not believe him when he says he came to seek and save the lost? Luke chapter 19, verse 10. Pay the penalty for our sin. Matthew chapter 26, verse 28. And provide eternal life. John chapter 6, verse 54. Although we take the Bible literally, there are still figures of speech within its pages. An example of a figure of speech would be that if someone said, It's raining cats and dogs outside you would know that they did not really mean that cats and dogs were falling from the sky. They would mean it's raining really hard. There are figures of speech in the Bible which are not to be taken literally, but those are obvious. See Psalm chapter 17 verse 8 for example. Finally, when we make ourselves the final arbiters of which parts of the Bible are to be interpreted literally, we elevate ourselves above God. Who is to say, then, that one person's interpretation of a biblical event or truth is any more or less valid than another's? The confusion and distortions that would inevitably result from such a system would essentially render the scriptures null and void. The Bible is God's word to us, and he meant it to be believed, literally and completely. Want to learn more? Subscribe so you don't miss the next video. Visit gotquestions.org for more great content, and check out the detail section below this video. There I can get rid of him. So he has some great stuff, and, and gotquestions.org is a, is a good place to go. Uh, but yes, so there are figures of speech. If you need to know more figures of speech, please read Song of Solomon. Uh, <laughs> but husbands, don't use those on your wife. They don't work anymore. I found out the hard way. No. Um, boy, it's all over the place. Okay, I need to get my notes. So I gave you the first one. We're going to talk a little bit about dispensationalism, too end the evening. So in in your notes, um, you have an overview of premillennialism. 
That's directly, they are not my notes. That's directly from a gentleman who spent a lot of time and has set his notes, including um, the one that you see in Mark Vander. It's uh, your like third page in, I get, well, third sheet in, in regards to that. And uh, they have, he has on his, and you can follow along with what you have with you. Um, dispensationalism, we're going to talk about that just a little bit. Now, I think I have another slide that shows the dispensations. But this is very similar to the last slide we saw, uh, where it talks about the church age. Then we have the seven years tribulation, the kingdom. But if you look at the top, um, the, the seven dispensations, and this is much of what Schofield would have taught there's the time of innocence, the fall, the time of conscience, and then human government, and, the, and then we have the promise to Abraham, and then finally we have the introduction of the law. And, and we'll talk about this in a second, but what I want to say here is that when God works with mankind, I'll be first to say, I do not believe that there are this many dispensations <laughs> Um, dispensation is just simply how is God dealing with mankind at, at one time? And I'm not going to berate or argue anybody who wants to hold on to seven. I, I, just, not, I just don't happen to hold it on that fast, uh, that hard-lined with it. So we'll look at that a little bit more, but let's understand what the dispensations are. So dispensationalism, and, and that is a, a very good book. Uh, the one I put at the back was Zondervan. Uh, Dictionary of Biblical Prophecy in End Times. I have enjoyed having that in, in my library. I just got the Kindle edition because it's not expensive and it's easy to drive down here with. Um, it's just wherever I am and I don't have to lug all these books around. So dispensationalism takes its na- dispensationalism takes its name from the belief that God works with humans in different ways or different administrations. That's what dispensation means through history. The term dispensation specifically refers to an administration or management order. comes out of the Greek word household management. So the concept being that maybe, maybe working... Children's probably a good example for this. So when your children can't speak to you, and they ga-ga-goo-goo-goo, and you have to feed them and change their diaper, you interact with your child one way because of where they are in life. Then, as we as, as they get older, my granddaughter is just starting to get this stage. She's got a few words. She laughs. She teases the dog with food, as I said this morning. <laughs> um, she did about five or six times, the poor dog. And so you begin to deal with her a different way because she understands now when you say goodnight to her that she's got bedtime and she's supposed to go to sleep. So she... So, you're, you're dealing differently. It's not quite as you were. And then the next, as they become, um, as they become more toddlers and into those childhood years, they begin reasoning. So as a parent, you deal with them a little bit differently. And some of us are in the in-between page, right? The toddler moving up to the next level slowly, and, and, and you have to deal with them differently. Then they become teenagers, and you move out and stay at a hotel until they're through it. Um, no, they become teenagers, and you again have to deal with them differently. And then finally, they kind of move out and get on their own. And that was the saddest part for my father. 
he said to us, you know what? Just about the time you get intelligent enough to talk to, you all move out on me. Uh, <laughs> but it's, it's, a, it's a different way of dealing with them. Dispensations are the same thing. God chooses to deal with mankind one way. So in the garden, his interaction with Adam and Eve is very different than his interaction with us. They walked with him. He came and talked. His presence was there. It was a different interaction. And then all of a sudden, we have the fall. You know, when they ate a mango. So we had the fall. And at the fall, things changed. Now there was this sin barrier. And God had to deal with them differently. Because sin was now in the way. He showed them about the sacrifices. So that's a, that's a different dispensation, how he's dealing with them. It's a different administration. So we have pre-fall, and now we have the fall. And I, and I wouldn't break it up as many ways as they do on there, because I, I think it sort of all works the same, that God hasn't changed his dealing with mankind. We're not told everything until we get to the time of Moses, and then we get the law. So yes, we, we went through uh, all the rest of that stuff, but, but when the law comes in, it's a, it's a different administration. It's a different way of dealing with his people. They now know a little bit more, and he shows them a little bit more. And then we deal with the law and the prophets. And then comes Christ at the cross, and that changes everything again. It's a different administration, how he deals with us than how he dealt with Israel or how he dealt with Adam and Eve before the fall and after the fall. And the millennial will be a different dispensation. One of the reasons I don't, we believe we're in the millennial is simply for the fact that it's supposed to be a righteous rule. And if this is a righteous rule, something's gone wrong with all the crazy stuff that goes on. So, Dispensations, that's a little bit of idea. So, uh, John Nelson Darby, uh, he was an Anglican minister and a leader in the Plymouth Brethren. He really uh, pushed some of this forward along with Schofield in understanding this. So that's the, the chart. I'm going the wrong way again. That's the chart. So we'll end off in just a second. But these are the seven dispensations. Again, you have them on your chart, but you can see them. Innocence, conscience, human government, promise, law, the cross, grace, that church period we're in now, and then the thousand-year reign with the tribulation separating it. And the Egypt and the bondage, the languages, that's when the promise came. The flood, then we have human government, and then the time of conscience after the curse. So, if you're a good Schofield Notes person, that's probably in your Bible very similar to that somewhere. Um, I just would break them up a little bit differently but have no problem with people who want to hold on to their dispensations. So, some things to know about dispensationalism. Uh, one of the distinctions between those who hold on to dispensationalists and those who don't falls around the distinction between Israel and the church. And that's where a lot of it comes. Um, their approach to hermeneutics, we're very literal in our approach. Also, the belief of God's underlying purpose so I would hold to the fact that the underlying purpose is the world is for God's glory. Others don't hold to that, but that's what I would hold to, that we are the chief end of man is God's glory. Okay, 
there's some discontinuity, and Feinberg did a great article on this, and the discontinuity between dispensationalists and those who don't hold the dispensation is, again, uh, one of them is the belief the Bible refers to in multiple senses to the term of Jew or the seed of Abraham. How does that work out? The other one is the hermeneutical approach um, that the Old Testament should be taken on its own terms and not reinterpreted completely by the New Testament. And that's where that last article I gave you to read, and I, I told you it confused you. The New Testament priority. So last one. I don't believe exactly everything he says, but this is good exposure to understand when people talk about New Testament priority and Old Testament. It's a page and a half. Again, I don't buy into what he's completely saying, but it's there because I think it's good for you to understand what people mean by that. Um, the belief that the Old Testament promises will be fulfilled by a national Israel. That's where a lot of the premillennial stuff comes down to. Is do you believe that God is done with Israel? And sort of the replacement theory that the church is completely taken over for Israel or Israel still has a place. A non-dispensationalist oftentimes falls in, well, we're done with Israel. And that lands them more in the all-millennial camp than anywhere else. There's also uh, the belief in a distinctive future for, I future, uh, for ethnic Israel. A belief that the church is distinctive organism and quite different from Israel, which is what we would believe. And a philosophy of history that emphasizes not just salvation, but the spiritual issues, but also social, economic, and political issues as well. Okay. Uh, progressive dispensationalism. Um, I might come back to that next week because I want to talk about the article. Where am I here? Rejection of placement theory. We're going to come back to this, but I want to talk about the article. Ah, there it is. Testament priority. We're going to close with this. One important aspect of biblical hermeneutics, the theory of biblical interpretation, as we talked about early, is the principle of New Testament priority. The beginning of the Middle Ages, Augustine of Hippo expressed the New Testament priority with the phrase, the new is in the old concealed and the old is in the new revealed. And there's some truth to that. Augustine meant that the Old Testament contains shadowy types and figures that are only clearly revealed in the New Testament. In other words, the New Testament explains the Old Testament. However, there's some dangers in New Testament priority too because dispensationalists or people who would give priority to the Old Testament think that Genesis 17.7 establishes an everlasting promise to the nation of Israel. And they read, the, they read their interpretation into the New Testament, convinced that God has future plans. Somebody who's coming the other way and saying New Testament has priority would say, no, we have to go back in the church is fulfillment of Genesis 17.7. So the argument is, can you take face value the Old Testament and can you learn from the intentions of what the Old Testament writers were saying at the time to the people? Or do you have to take everything from the New Testament and go, well, what they really meant, and we talked about this early on when we started down this path, that concept of near and far fulfillment. 
And I believe in Old Testament priority that it was written for a purpose and that there is fulfillment for the people there, although there could be more to come that we find through progressive revelation. But I don't think it negates why it was written and what it was written there for. And so when I look at Genesis 17, 7, I say to myself, no, I don't think the church replaced Israel completely. I do fall into a camp where I believe the kingdom of God is here, in, but not yet. And I preach that. It's here that, yes, Christ rules on the throne. He is control all that happens, but he's physically not reigning. But Scripture clearly teaches us that one day he will. So while he rules in our hearts, we still look forward to this time where he'll fulfill this promise and other promises. So the kingdom's here and not yet. And we'll talk a little bit about that next time I get together. So, again, back to the Testament priority. Galatians 3.16 says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to, to your offspring, who is Christ. So, explicitly... 316 denies sort of this plural offspring. So this is where they get their priority from, saying the promise is that there's only one offspring. Because there's only one offspring, this must mean that the church supersedes Israel. And we just become, it becomes a replacement theory. And I know you're going to read that article and you're going to be like me the first time through, very confused, because it's been many years since I've talked about Testament priority. But it's important that you at least try to read it and to rub up against it a little bit and to understand it. And you might not get it completely. I'm still struggling and thinking certain things through. It's fine. But if you never stretch yourself, you'll never get there. And that is the important part. Stretching yourself, and it may hurt a little bit. But read Tom, uh, Tom Hicks' article uh, on testament priority, and you'll begin to understand why um, some people don't quite see that Israel has a future the way we do. So we really believe that God still has more to do with Israel and he'll fulfill those promises. But somebody who's coming from a New Testament priority will say, no, 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 the church is the replacement. And that really begins the, the battle between whether you're premillennial and still looking for that thousand-year reign, or you're thinking, no, no, the church has replaced Israel, we're in that millennial now. That's one of the battlegrounds, if I can use that term loosely. Because those among us who may hold all millennial positions are still born-again believers, they're still going to heaven. We might believe they hold something wrongly, but guess what? They believe you hold something wrongly too. But it's not a test of faith. It's just an understanding of what's going to happen. But it does have a, a wide effect on how you view Thessalonians and how you view some of Revelations, to which we'll get into a little bit next week. So we'll do the six, um, six beliefs of dispensationalism next time and get into some other things. And I promise I'll try to get this done before I leave, before Todd gets here, so we get finished through it. It's been a most interesting study. It is stretching me because it's been a long time since I've done some of this stuff because, well, A, I hadn't been a minister for a while, but B, like most ministers, you stay away from it because it's difficult slugging and it's really hard to do. Uh, 
Except the guys that have big, big staffs where other guys can preach for them for a month at a time and then they can go study for a long time. Uh, but there's all kinds of books on it. Uh, so you have his article. Um, if you get a chance, MacArthur and Richard Mayhew have a great one, uh, Christ Prophetic Plans. Um, that's from Moody Publishers. That's a nice one to read. Oh, I should have said this morning. Um, if you're thinking of understanding um, Son of God, the use of Son of God with Jesus Christ, um, I didn't get back to it, but it was in Second John in the introduction the week before, and I wasn't lying to you because I said I'd get back to it, and I didn't get back to it. Um, I just didn't have room for it. Don D.A. Carson uh, from Trinity has a 128-page booklet, and I think it's called God's Son. I'll try to put it in the family brief. That's a quick read. I'm almost through it, uh, but that's a very good read for those who might wonder, well, how do we use God's Son? Because that becomes a huge thing with, um, I know I'm in a bunny trail here, with Muslim, when you witness to them, it's like, well, it says Jesus is a son. Well, how can a human being be God? And, and so Carson does a great job in his book um, of showing us how that is used in different ways in the Old Testament. Uh, but it's 128 pages. I think I got it on Kindle for, for 8 or $9. I forget exactly. But it's a nice read, but it's by Carson. And I'll try to remember to put that in the brief this week as an explanation of, oh, I'm sorry, I missed this in Sunday service. But here's a book you can buy, and I'm not getting any uh, kickback from Mr. Carson to promote his book. But Dr. Carson does a great job on that one. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your love and we thank you for even the hard parts of Scripture. Even parts that we may disagree with people that sit down the pew on a Sunday morning from us or people in a church across town. But we thank you for them and we thank you that we can stretch ourselves. And we thank you that it doesn't discourage us, but it just makes us in awe, wonder, how wonderful you are that you have this all pieced together. And as we watch it unfold, we can see your mighty hand at work. And we thank you again for your love and that, that we can be assured that we are in your hand. And as all these things happen around us, we don't have to panic and we don't have to get concerned because we are in your hands. Again, we thank you for that. We pray as we go this week that you'll give us opportunities to share our faith and our love with those around us, uh, to be your hands and feet at Forest and in Lambton Shores or wherever our travels may take us. Again, we do pray for those this evening that aren't here, Father, those that are struggling and with concerns. Father, we pray for those who have been visiting the church over the last few weeks that we'll be able to continue to reach out to them and encourage them in their lives, uh, some of them looking for new churches, some of them searching for salvation. We thank you for your love in Christ's name. Amen.